This Rewind episode is about two courageous women who started a foundation to help our children, men and women, the black and brown when they go missing, because we don't always get the media attention and the police presence that you see when others go missing. It was one that really stuck with me and it's one that I hope will really stick with you and will encourage you to get involved. When you see those pictures of our men, women, boys and girls missing, I hope that it will prompt you to help and share. Hello, hello, and welcome to In My Shoes. It's a podcast for women of color where we talk about the issues that we're facing each and every day. I am your host, Karen Davis-Thompson, and today I have two uh, women that I'm really excited to talk to, Derricka Wilson and Natalie Wilson, and the two of them together started a foundation, Black and Missing Foundation, and we're going to be talking about that a little bit today. You know, we already did one with Egypt Sherrod where she kind of talked about the same thing, and I wanted to talk to them today, and I'm just going to have them introduce themselves, and then we'll get right into this conversation. So, Derricka, if you could just tell everyone hello and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hello, everyone. My name is Derricka Wilson. Um, I am originally from Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I moved to the Washington, D.C. area about 21 years ago. Um, This is home for me. I am married to Natalie's wonderful brother, and we have two beautiful children. And um, thank you so much for having us on the show, using your platform to help us tell our stories. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And Natalie, how about you? Sure. I am Natalie Wilson, the co-founder of the Black and Missing Foundation. I'm originally from Trinidad and um, came to DC at a very young age. Um, Went to school here at Howard University, well, in in D.C., Howard University, and um, have been working in PR for about 15 years and very passionate about helping us find us. Thank you for that. Shout out to another HBCU grad. I'm a FAMU graduate and also majored in journalism. So um, some kindred spirits there. So thank you so much for that. And so we'll get right into it. And uh, Natalie, I'll start with you. So tell me why this was something that you all thought was important to start. So the motivation behind the Black and Missing Foundation is um, there was a young lady by the name of Tamika Houston who went missing from Derricka's hometown of Spartanburg, South Carolina. And we read how her family, and by the way, her aunt was in media relations, and they really struggled to get any type of media coverage for her disappearance. And a little while later, Natalie Holloway went missing. And I know just saying her name alone, her vision, her face is well known to everyone who's listening. And we wanted to just, we wanted to do some research to figure out, is this an issue in our community? Are there other Tamikas or is this just an isolated incident? So at the time we did our research, 30% of all persons missing were of color. And now that number has grown to 40%. So Derek and I decided to join our professions. I'm in media relations. She's in law enforcement to, you know, help us find us. And the inspiration behind it, why we keep going is because these families, they need us. We are their last resort because they're not getting assistance from law enforcement and they're not getting awareness from the media. Thank you so much. And Derricka, what would you like to add to that? Why was it this particular case that really, really uh, struck a chord with you? I think because Tamika was from my hometown and all of my family, they're still back in South Carolina. And knowing that her family member, her aunt, 
represented the media and she had problems trying to garner the attention. Natalie and I, after doing research, we're like, why not us? You know, we possess the two critical professions needed in helping our community to, you know, be in that voice, bridging that gap. And so we just went to work on it. And it's something, it's, it's a labor of love, something that we wanted to do. And it's our way to give back to the community and let these families know that they're not in this fight alone. And so when you all decided to start the nonprofit, what did that process look like? What did you all have to to do? Were there any barriers that you encountered? Uh, Derek, I'll let you start. I would say that um, when you're on assignment, because this is an assignment, this is our passion, our labor, labor of love, um, you know, God has ordered our footsteps um, to be able to be that vessel and help these families. Of course, we have faced challenges and, and we understand that the families that we work and we, you know, we help and assist, they face challenges, whether it's with law enforcement, whether it's with the media. And so Natalie and I, we try to absorb that burden off of these families by working with them, guiding them on how to file a police report. You know, Natalie's working with them, with the media, trying to get those stories covered because we know that it's been difficult. We've experienced it ourselves. Um, we've come a, a long way. We still have a long way to go. But I think little by little, our community, they're starting to recognize that this is an issue. It is a pandemic. This is happening in our own backyards. I know that when we did get started, you know, 12 years ago, we were on the ground, boots on the ground in our community. And our community had no knowledge that people were going missing because when you turn your televisions on, you don't see anyone that looks like you. So that was definitely a struggle in the very beginning. I think it's becoming more diverse, um, you know, and, and the fact that we have social media is helping, you know, bridge that gap as well. And Natalie, how about you? Was there a particular uh, struggle or, or something when you all were started that really st uh, stuck, sticks out to you and um, something that you all had to overcome when you were starting? Yes, um, I believe educating our communities that sex trafficking is an issue in our backyards. And we would hear from, um, you know, just community members that sex trafficking is happening abroad. It's not happening here. So it's, again, trying to change that mindset and to educate our communities that our children, our boys and girls are being um, victimized and just trying to change that mindset and having our community come forward with information as well. I know we talk a lot about the media and law enforcement having a responsibility, but our community, we need to speak up. Um, we have this no snitching in our community and we need someone, if you have information to come forward, because it could be your mother or your father or your child um, that is missing. And from a media perspective, it was really challenging to get the media to take these cases seriously and to just have a screenshot for, of a few seconds of a missing individual. You know, it was really tough. I remember Phoenix Colden's case out of um, St. Louis, I called every single media outlet to get coverage for her and no one wanted to do it. And I had to be persistent. And finally, one media outlet said, okay, you know what, I'll show her on screen for a few seconds. And that led to other media coverage. And, you know, I'm sure we all know the short answer to this question, but just talk to me a little bit about why you think there is such a resistance to showing the, the faces of um, 
black and brown people who are missing. I mean, I remember when you all said Natalie Holloway's name, her face, uh, you know, was so vivid in my mind because you heard, I mean, they did like a whole documentary behind her disappearance. Um, I mean, it, it, it got quite a bit of attention. And so why do you think it has to be such a struggle for us to get even a fraction of that type of coverage when um, someone in our culture and our race goes missing? Natalie, I'll let you start. Okay. Well, first, um, oftentimes when our children are reported missing, they are classified as a runaway, so they do not receive the Amber Alert or any type of media coverage. And then there's already this perception that these individuals that are missing, their lives don't matter. They um, are poor. They are being fast. They're getting what they deserve. They live in that community. So those sorts of things happen. So these people aren't seen as humans and they're stereotyped to be living a certain way. And then we also have to change the mindset of the people who have the power of the pen, which is the media outlets, they aren't, there isn't diversity in the, in the newsroom. So they don't feel compelled to show our profiles. And we have to change that narrative. And we also have to hold our elected leaders accountable so that these individuals are seen as humans. Thank you uh, so much for mentioning that. I did a Race in America series recently, and I had a few people echo the same sentiments that it's like we're not seen as human beings worthy of that same um, attention that you give um, to to white people when someone in their community is missing. And Derica, what are your thoughts about that? I completely agree. Um, I'm glad Natalie touched on, you know, holding our elected leaders accountable. You know, with this election coming up, we really need for our community to recognize the importance of casting our votes, you know, and it's not just for the presidency, it's our local leaders as well. Those are the ones that can make a difference in the community and how cases are handled, how human trafficking victims are treated, how the uh, criminal justice system can impose sanctions on these predators. So that is very important. And it starts there on that local level. Um, But ultimately, you know, this is not the sole responsibility of one particular group. It's everyone's responsibility. It's law enforcement. It's the media. It's our community. We all play a vital role in this epidemic. And I didn't realize, actually, that was one of the questions I was going to ask. I didn't realize that if you're classified as a runaway, there's no Amber Alert given. Because I did hear when I went back and watched uh, the piece that you all were featured in, uh, one woman did talk about that and, and her daughter was like 15 or 16. And they just said, oh, she ran away. And I guess my question around that, Derek, and I'll start with you since you're in law enforcement, is I mean, is it just acceptable you have a 15-year-old who runs away and so because they ran away, it's still a minor, it's okay for that to be done? Like, why is it that because they're classified as a runaway, you're still not going to look for them, you know, diligently? Well, I would say even with our organization, Black and Missing uh, Foundation, we do not even use the terminology runaways. If they're missing, they're missing. Um, You know, it's so unfortunate that oftentimes, you know, law enforcement label them as runaways. And when they do that, there's no sense of urgency. Um, People are really not connected and, and people tend to be judgmental. You know, I think as a community, as a society, we need to understand, you know, when these children are running away. What are they running away from and who are they running to? So there's a whole 
bigger dynamic that we need to talk about um, just to see what's happening. I know a few years ago we were dealing with that hysteria in D.C. when, you know, all of these young girls were missing and they thought it was a serial abductor in the area. Um, and, and we do applaud and we partner with the MPD, um, Metropolitan Police Department. We applaud their efforts in getting these cases out there. Um, and so it really shined a spotlight on what's happening. Um, but one thing that we did find out when Natalie and I were going out um, doing the community events and speaking on this issue is that there are so many children who are running away from something at home. We were hearing from kids that were being abused at home. They were being raped. They were being pimped. So I think it's a bigger discussion about what's happening, you know, behind their closed doors that, you know, we have to deal with. And, and one case that we've been working on this weekend is a, is a two-year-old a little girl that went missing out of Texas. Um, her name is Malia. And Malia, she went missing Saturday morning, last seen around 8.30 a.m. The Amber Alert did not come out for that baby until Sunday morning. Um, at two years old, left unattended on the playground. Um, that warrant uh, an Amber Alert immediately. Her life was in danger. And sadly, um, there was a body found Sunday afternoon that matched her description, and we're still awaiting um, the results of the identity. And there is this white woman syndrome. I'm not sure if you and your audience have heard of it, but if you're blonde haired and blue eyed and, and fair skinned, then you're deemed more worthy. Well, guess what? Our brown and black lives matter as well. Thank you for that. And I did want to just ask really quickly, when the um, when your police chief, did you say it was a police chief or mayor came out with their press conference about this poor baby? Did they talk about the reason why they waited on the Amber Alert? I mean, if she went missing Saturday morning, what was their rationale for waiting until Sunday to do the Amber Alert? You know, that's been a question from many people in the community. Um, from what we are hearing, um, they didn't feel that it warrant, it, it didn't bubble up to that level. There are levels uh, which allows them to activate an Amber Alert. And at that time, they didn't feel that it bubbled up to that level where they thought her life was in danger. Um, and I don't know where that information may have come from, but I would like to assume that anytime a child, especially that young age, is missing, um, it definitely warrants an Amber Alert. And this goes back to, you know, holding our elected leaders accountable and, and you know, making sure that we're changing uh, how we respond to these cases and how we're changing the law when a police report should be filed, whether it's an adult or a child. Um, I think that there needs to be a sense of urgency uh, because when we started our organization 12 years ago, 30% of missing people in America was of color, and that number has increased to 40%. So the numbers are alarming, uh, and they're steadily increasing. So we really need to just change how we how we respond, how the reporting structure is, how the Amber Alert is mobilized. Um, I think it's across the board. And I think it's fascinating to think that a two-year-old who was left unattended at 8.45 a.m. doesn't bubble up to the level of her life is in danger. She's two. I mean, I guess, I, I it, you know, I agree with what you're saying. It's like, how do you determine that? She's two and she's missing and there's nobody there to take care of her. Um, you know, to me, that right there would be enough to say, hey, her life is in danger and we should 
uh, have an Amber Alert um, to try and find her. So it's just really sad to know that you have to train people or, you know, to, to think differently. Um, can we talk a little bit about, and I'll let each of you answer, Natalie, you can start. What services specifically, you know, a family comes to you, they say, hey, my son, daughter, husband, wife, et cetera, is missing um, and I can't get any traction. I need help. What services do you all offer to those families? So the first thing that we do is we verify that a police report, missing persons report is on file. And oftentimes it is not either the police officer or law enforcement don't take the report or the families, they don't know what to do. So we hold their hands because at this point they become part of our family and we help them navigate the system to work with law enforcement. We create flyers um, for them. We enter their information into our clearinghouse and at this point, we're utilizing social media to bring awareness to their disappearance because we cannot wait for the news cycle. We have to get this information out quickly and we have to get it out to a vast audience. And we coach them in working with the media. I hate to say this, but oftentimes as black women, we come, be, we come across as angry black women. So, you know, we teach or we coach these women or families how to interact with the media, how to present their message so that the public is concerned and they want to act. So it's a call to action to help find that missing individual. So the key is when a person is missing to bring about awareness because someone knows something, someone may have seen something and all it takes is one individual to come forward to help find that person or to provide answers or closure for their family. And now, Derek, is there anything you wanted to add to that? No, Natalie said it all. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much. So I was just wondering if we could talk a little bit now about, um, and I'll, I'll ask each of you to name a, a case or a family that you've worked with where their story just really to this day really sticks in your mind and if you could talk about why. And Derica, you can start. Well, one of the stories that really stick in my mind, um, and thank God we were able to find this baby, uh, but this was maybe about four years ago, four or five years ago. Um, I, I would never forget this mother calling into uh, Black and Missy Foundation and she was crying and she actually told us that we were her last hope. Um, she was actually contemplating uh, suicide because her daughter had been missing for six months. No one was helping her and she was on the verge. Um, and, and so we, we talked to her. Um, we told her that we were going to find her baby and she just needed to trust us. Um, we immediately went in full swing ahead. I started working with our law enforcement partners. Natalie started working with our media partners. And after she gave us a call, and that call took place on a Friday, um, Natalie was able to arrange for her to go live with one of our media partners to talk about her story that Monday. And they re-aired the, the uh, interview that following day, and someone knew where that child was, knew the father and knew where the child was and uh, reported it in. And we were able to reunite her with her baby after being missing for six months. So that case, it really shines a spotlight on how 
all of us play a, a vital part where, you know, we had the community that said something, they see something, say something. We had law enforcement's full cooperation. We had our media partners that helped get the story out there. So that story always resonates with me because, you know, these families go through so much. And, and I'm sure Natalie may even touch on this, but, you know, not all of our stories have those happy endings. Um, and, and, and it may sound cliche also, but when we find our missing, the person that went missing is not the same person that returns home. Because in a lot of cases, you don't know what they endured, what they experienced while they were out there. But that story was really a success story for us. And to know that we made such a huge difference, um, especially knowing that you're the last hope and, and this mother is on the verge of, you know, contemplating suicide. That's tough. Thank you so much for sharing that story. Natalie, how about you? What's a story that really resonates and sticks out for you even today? To be honest with you, there are so many stories. Um, I can't just think of one because I think about the Jade Morris, um, the Keisha Jacobs, the Kia Eggleston, um, Pamela Butler, all of these individuals. I mean, and that's just a few that I named where their families are desperately searching for their missing loved one and they have nowhere to turn and we are their last resort. I mean, the Kennedy Highs, who was a victim of sex trafficking and you know we were able to find her because of a vigilant um, you know, BAMFI supporter. So there, I think just about every case that we touch becomes personal because we are so connected with that family. We hear them and we feel their pain and we want to help them. And just touching on that, how do you deal with that? I know, you know, you both talked about the fact that, you know, when God is ordering your steps, he He makes ways for you to get things done and you were able to start your organization. But how do you deal with the weight, I guess, that must come with, you know, these families? Because I'm sure there are several um, that are a part of your family who are still desperately searching for their loved one. They haven't been able to make headway. And so how do you deal with that? Natalie, I'll let you start. Well, I have to step away sometimes and regroup. And what keeps me going is being from Trinidad, I listen to Calypso music. And it gives me the energy, the strength, the calmness to know that, you know, what I'm struggling with or the heaviness is small in comparison to what these families are going through. So I step away, I musa, I listen to my music, I dance a little bit, and then I get right back into it. And Derica, how about you? Same here. I love to listen to gospel. Um, it just ministers to my soul and it allows me to you know, release. Um, but then I'm I'm also married to a trainee, so we do a lot of calypso in the house as well. But my my main go to is my gospel for inspiration. Yes, girl, there's nothing like a good gospel song. <laughs> can agree with that can attest to that. You're um, crying all out. <laughs> yes, God. <laughs> it's just like the words, they just seem to have words that go right to whatever you're going through. But I'm telling you. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> And do either of you um, have an opinion about why you think I'll start with you, Natalie, since, you know, media relations is your background. What are some of the comments that you hear from media outlets when you're desperately asking them to 
you know, post information about a missing person of color and they seem to be resistant to it. What are you telling? Why, why are they telling you that's the reason? What reason are they giving you? Well, actually, they don't give a reason. Um, they just seem very disinterested. And I have to be persistent and build a relationship. So what I've realized in all of this, it's building a relationship and partnership with these media outlets to let them know that we are, we need them as an ally. So they aren't blatant with it. They're not coming out and saying, you know what, I, I can't cover it. They'll, they may say, well, you know, send it to me. Uh, and it never appears on screen. So, you know, we just have to be persistent and to build, you know, those relationships with the reporter, with the assignment desk editor, so that they can show this, this missing individual. And again, we just need a few seconds. We're not asking for a whole segment. A few seconds with a description of the missing person can go a long way. Thank you so much. And Derica, why do you, do you think that there has been, um, over the last 12 years of your uh, organization, do you think there's been an improvement? Do you see more uh, media outlets that seem to be willing to do that? And now, Natalie, I'll let you give your opinion as well, but do you think it's getting better? I think it's getting better. I think we're seeing uh, more diversity. We always say less is more, less of one particular race and more of everyone that's missing, greater the chances of a reunion. And, you know, we're not trying to dishonor any community. We're just trying to even the playing field. So with Natalie's background and expertise in media relations, she's been able to garner a lot of media partnerships and, and um coverage for our missing. And, you know, we're steadily working with law enforcement. We know that there is a lack of resources when it comes to missing person units in these police departments. Um, oftentimes you may have one person designated to the missing persons division. And so those officers are stretched thin and any help from outside advocacy groups, especially, you know, being a fellow uh, sister in blue, um, it's welcoming, you know, to, to try to help ease the caseload and um, help these families and, and the law enforcement uh, communities close these cases. And Natalie, how about you? Do you think it's been um, an improvement over the last few years? Yes, we've made great strides. We have opened a lot of doors with partnerships um, to help bring awareness to these missing individuals, people missing from our communities, but we still have a long way to go. And we, and when I say that, I mean that our kids are more protected. Our seniors and individuals with mental health illnesses, um, they're no longer disappearing and we really don't need the media or we don't need the coverage. So we've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And again, we do need more diversity in the newsroom and we need them to be fair in their coverage. Absolutely. As you said, we're just asking for an even playing field. Uh, and I've heard both of you mention this and I just want to get your thoughts on it. Why do you think sometimes your organization seems to be a last resort? Is it that maybe they weren't aware of your organization at first? Or why do you think that um, you know, it's not one of the first things people think to do when a loved one is missing. Derek, I'll let you start. You know, when a family is dealing with, you know, not knowing where their loved one is, you know, they're looking at every avenue. Of course, 
one of the first outlets they're going to contact is law enforcement, but then it starts going full speed ahead. You know, time is of the essence. So every second that ticks by these families, they're like, okay, well, who else can I call? Who can I reach, you know, rely on, you know, who can assist, who can help? Um, they're, they're posting to social media. People, they learn about our organization. You know, we, we, come in swiftly. And when they reach out to us, you know, they, they often say that, you know, you're our last hope, you know, the police department, they may not be doing anything or they may be tied up with the resources, you know, I, for whatever reason, whatever's happening, you know, we just have to focus on, you know, helping these families and, and stay in the course of trying to get their loved one home, making sure the police report is on file and doing what we have to do. Because as Natalie stated, we can't wait on the five and 10 o'clock news cycle. Social media has been very vital and critical in helping us help these families. Um, you know, we're sitting here talking now and we just got our alert that someone that we posted has been found uh, thanks to social media and the flyers that we've been putting out. So that's the power of social media. Everyone's walking around with a device, a smart device, a handheld computer. So, you know, we can get this information out instantly. Thank you so much. And Natalie, how about you? Do you think it's just, you know, they're, they're, they've got so much going on that they don't realize it? Or uh, why do you think it is that a lot of times they're like, hey, you guys are my last hope? Well, I think a couple of things. One, families in a time of emergency, they don't know what to do. Most, most of the times we aren't prepared for an emergency. Think about when you lose your key or your phone, you're literally going out of your mind trying to find it. And you don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. Um, but as we continue to grow as an organization, and we're a relatively young organization, we need to continue to build awareness about who we are, the work that we do, and the success stories to give families hope. So as we are growing and we're people are becoming more aware of us, the media outlets are reaching out to us regarding cases. Law enforcement is reaching out to us regarding cases. Um, family members, you know, we're receiving cases from social media and from a number of um, platforms. So it's just, again, bringing about awareness and we are becoming a household name. So anyone who has a missing person, they know to first contact law enforcement, and then we are here as a resource. We're an advocate for this often voiceless group. Thank you so much for that. And just a few more questions as we wrap up. So um, just to give people a few steps, if a loved one goes missing, what should you do? Um, Derek, I'll let you start. If someone has to endure this uh, traumatic experience, the first thing that you should do is file a police report. Um, file that police report, make sure you have critical information, um, you have a photo ID, uh, a picture of that, your loved one, and make sure it's a, a headshot photo. Um, you would not believe some of the photos that we, we receive. Um, and, I, and I hate for it to sound insensitive, but we really want people to feel the pain that you're feeling and, and we want those appropriate IDs. You know, knowing their height, weight, last known location, um, if there's a car involved, what they were wearing, th those are critical details that can help us, you know, by putting the information out because someone knows something. 
So definitely file a police report, reaching out to the Black and Missing Foundation. Um, one of the things that we will discourage families from doing is creating flyers and putting their personal phone numbers on the flyers. Um, we've had so many cases where people are targeted, they're scammed, um, and, and these families, they're very vulnerable. And so these people will call them and they're you know, saying, we're holding your loved one for ransom and they start sending money. And it's very sad, but this is happening all the time. You know, that's really sad. I, I, it's the mind of some people to come up with something like that in someone's time of grief is horrible. Natalie, was there anything that you wanted to add to what people should do if their loved one goes missing? Well, just remember that time is of the essence. So as Derricka mentioned, gather all of the information that you can along with a photo and share it within your community, with, within your love, um, your network so that you can bring awareness to this missing individual. And again, we are an advocate for these families, for the missing individual. So definitely reach out to the Black and Missing Foundation so that we can provide assistance and help you through the process because we know it can be traumatic at times. Thank you for adding that. And Derica, it looks like you wanted to add something as well. Yes. Um, I would also like to add, we do create these social media flyers for families. And so when we create them, we also encourage them to change their profile picture out um, and tag their family and friends and ask them to change the profile picture as well to that missing person flyer. That will help garner additional awareness and have more eyes on that individual. So everyone in the community and even outside of the community will be on the lookout for your, your loved one. Thank you so much for adding that. I appreciate that. Um, just a few more. If you all could tell me when you like, for example, you said you got an alert just while we've been on this call that uh, through your efforts, someone had been found that you had profiled who was missing. When you get those types of alerts, when those types of things happen, how does it make you feel? Derek, I'll let you start. You know, when we started this organization, we said, um, if we can find, help a family find, you know, their missing loved one, one person, we've done our job. Um, it's a it's a great feeling um, and we take it in strides. Um, you know, there are some days that there are good days and then there are some, some bad days. And, um, you know, we just take every case and we handle it, you know, appropriately, but it's, it's an awesome feeling to know that, um, that we made, we played a part. We played a part in bringing a family back together. Thank you so much, Natalie. How about you? Sure. It feels awesome to play a, a major role in finding or at least bringing awareness to that missing ind individual so that their family can have a sense of relief. They can go about their lives in some sense of normalcy. So we're excited. We we don't really celebrate, but we do, you know, publish great news so that all of our followers on social media who took the time to share the profile, they can just take a moment and bask. And we also utilize the, those great news to help other family members who have a missing loved one to hold on to hope because then, you know, we want them to know that this can happen for you too. We, all, we have all heard of cases where um, an individual or individuals were missing for many, many years, like the Cleveland girls, and then they were found. So these success stories, these 
good news gives other people in the community with a missing loved one hope. Absolutely. How can people who are listening to this podcast, how can they help uh, the Black um, and Missing Foundation? Uh, Natalie, how about you start? Sure. So some low hanging fruit things that they can do. They can follow us on BAMFI to see all of our social media platforms. They can subscribe, they can follow us and also share the alerts. So it's not a matter of just liking it. You have to share it, share it within your network so that someone can see and help find this missing individual. And then funding. Um, we do not take a salary from this organization at all because we have full-time jobs, but the need is great by the community. When an individual is found deceased, many times the families look to us for burial services. They look to us for flyer creation, printing, um, and all of those things are expensive. We even provide financial support from the donations that we receive to help these families. Because think about it, if a mother is missing or a father is missing, that income within the household is no longer there. So those are two low hanging fruit things that individuals can do. And they can go to our website to see how they can get involved. And that's at bamfi.org. And lastly, have the conversation with your children about being safe, about being, um, you know, proactive and, and careful as to what they're doing on social media. Everyone is online now. Our kids are being educated online and these predators know that. And they're targeting our children and many of them are disappearing because they're meeting these pedophiles. So we just have to continue to have those conversations. Derica, how about you? I agree with everything Natalie just um, said. I would just encourage, again, families, especially with the kids doing the distant learning, they are spending more time on, uh, on the internet and these predators, that is a predator's playground. You know, we use the power of internet social media to help drive our agenda to find our missing loved ones. And you have predators that utilize the platform to lure and recruit, you know, our children and, and men and women. And so we just ask the parents to have those uncomfortable conversations, be those nosy parents, understand that you are the parent and your child is not your friend. Um, so seeing what apps they're downloading, who they're communicating with, and it's not just um, on the social media platforms, it's also in their gaming systems, the Xbox, the, the PlayStations, Roblox, you know, all of these different gaming platforms. These predators are definitely luring kids to these platforms. So just being very vigilant and having those conversations with your children. I want to appreciate both of you for taking out the time to speak with me today. Um, again, just wanted to reiterate 40% of those missing are people of color. And it's really uh, an easy thing that we can all do to try to help out to make sure that families can find their loved ones. Again, to Derricka Wilson and Natalie Wilson, thank you for your time today. That's all we have for today. If you uh, have any topics that you want to hear us talk about here at In My Shoes, you can hit me up at KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. Again, KDT at InMyShoesToday.com. And until we meet again, be blessed.